0: we're back again this is Atlantic Discuss yes we're back every week we always come to you with a very interesting guest and discuss issues that are very important to the world to Africa West Africa and most importantly the world uh, largest country that has the world largest concentration of black people which is Nigeria my name still remains Ade Baluku. I'm still your host and moderator today we're going to be talking about ethnicity religion and polarization in Nigeria what the future holds and we have an interesting guest, an erudite scholar, Ivan, that has seen it all by all standards, politically, economically. You know, he's a scholar, no doubt. We have today our guest, Professor Patrick Okedinachi Utomi. Prof, welcome to Atlantic Discuss.
1: Thank you very much. I'm so pleased to be able to join you.
0: We're equally very pleased. I'm sure most of our viewers know you, but I still insist on uh, introducing you in a way that I, I choose to mm-hmm. for, for strategic reasons that we will see as the program goes on. Now, Professor Tommy was born in Kaduna, which is currently in Kaduna State, and he's from Ibuzo, you know, Shimili, local government in uh, Delta State. He had his primary school education in St. Thomas, in Kano. You can see the trajectory there, yeah, from 16 to 62. He also went to a of Fatima in Guso from 62 to 66. Guso, as we all know, is in Zambra State. Subsequently, went to Christ the King's College in Bonita and then Loyola College in Ibadan. So you can see the man all around the nation. Finishing the secondary school education at the age of 15. The entry age for university at that time was 17. So he enrolled at the Federal School of Arts and Science in the interim. He later got admitted into the University of Nigeria, Utsuka, to study mass communication. Professor Tommy graduated from the University of Utsuka in 1977. He attended Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, in the United States, where we are right now, where he got his PhD. He was appointed professor of social and political economy, environment for business and entrepreneurship at the Lagos Business School in 2003. He has been a scholar and resident at the Abbott Business School and the American University of Washington DC. Professor, Tommy, welcome to Atlanta discourse once again. So <laughs> basically, what we do here is we always go for the jugular. We're true to power. We embrace all facets of humanity to disseminate positive news in the world filled with bad news. We give a voice to the unheard. We balance the information equation always search and discuss the facts wherever it leads we combine the best of the human race to get the best out of mankind we mm-hmm. serve as a bridge between the developing and the developed world we embrace business apps what it health, is and even faith-based issues we do not shy away from the fact so but during the week you know what i was trying to reach you was that i read something that exactly what we're discussing, Ethnicity, Religion, and Polarization in Nigeria, written by Dr. Aigenus Banco Oyibi. And while reading it, which is going to my first question, he said, I'm quoting it, Nigeria is a diverse country manifested by culture, religion, ethnicity, language, climate, occupation, and education. Diversity is usually preached as a strength when the country faces ethno-religious crisis that threatens unity and peaceful coexistence. But Its cohesive role is relegated when the ethnicity or religion is invoked to curry favor or to outwitch one another in politics. There have been different perspectives to the narrative about the problems of Nigeria, with insignificant effort to solve the issues and strengthen the unity of the country. The different steps that involve that individuals and groups take to express ethno-religious identity in Nigeria tends to complicate cleavages without showing strong peace-building drive. Prof, my question to you is this. Were the British wrong to put us together Have an issue? And my reason is this. If you rule, say, a, an horizontal line from Cameroon all the way to Ivory Coast, for example, let's start with Cameroon. Lincoln, Cameroon is Islamic. You have cities like Garwa, Marwa. Northern Nigeria. I'm using this as a focal point now. So even mm-hmm. in the Northern Terrain, most of the areas below Zaria, the Sayawa people of the Auti, the Kateb, the Kutebs of uh, Southern Karela, the Southern Cadena, are Christian. Now, if we move to Northern Benin Republic, you see Malanville, Natigungu, Paraku, all Islamic. Northern Ghana, Tamale, Northern Ivory Coast, Waike. And you know, the map of West African beds that's where you saw the Kimi and what have you. So, uh, my question apart from the Yoruba's of uh, Port Novo and Southwestern Nigeria, there's no semblance of Islam beneath that line. So, the question goes back to why I said I've mean, issued. Were the British wrong to put us together in the first instance? What to you, sir.
1: Well, you know, um, when I listen to narratives. Along the lines of, you know, flows of peoples and ethnicity, I am struck by the fact that there is no really unique set of identities. All identities are mixed. And this is why the problems of ethnicity are problems of leadership and political actors and how they take advantage of this. I mean, let's even come to the United States of America today and look at how the gap between us and them has grown in more recent times, different than in years before. Look at Europe and how nationalist fervor has grown in more recent times. And this has really always been about how political actors showed leadership. In Nigeria, When the British came, and and this is very interesting, Uh, I mean, my living room right behind me here is a location where we had a couple of meetings of of an organization called Yigba, Reverend Laddie Thompson, who I believe is living in Canada most of the time these days, because I ran into him in a hotel in Washington, D.C. just a few weeks ago. Uh, Ladis Thompson had created this initiative called YIBA. It was designed to bring Yoruba and Ibu elite together to talk about this subject. And he approached me to host the meeting. I was quite pleased to oblige. And on the table behind me here sat, men who are not typically political like Dr. Christopher Coladi on the Yoruba side the more typically political ones like Papa Yohadi Banjo uh, 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 the leader of the Yoruba Nation Professor um, um, Banji um, Banji uh, I did yeah um and several very senior Yoruba leaders. And then on the Ibu side, people like General Iken Wachuku, uh, George Obiozo, late now, uh, Joe Iruku, now late, Professor Iruku, all of these people. At the point, there were as many as 200 very senior people in this my living room on that meeting of Iba. And I recalled that I had to make a statement that day. Because uh, um, Professor um, Banji uh, 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 had um, had um, told a story about Chief of Bafemia inviting him and the late uh, Chief Lani Wajai and saying to them, look that one problem he's, he feels so bad that he has not fixed is this so-called Igbo-Yoruba divide and that he was charging them with the duty to make sure that they ended that whole thing. Uh, so, as you can see, Chief made quite an effort towards the end of his life to remove these stereotypes that led to this perception of a divide between these two peoples. I was then moved to make a contribution on my reading of history, which incidentally was written by an American, uh, Jared Diamond, who out of Colombia writes brilliantly on these matters, was looking at origins of man and stuff like that. I believe in the book uh, Guns, uh, Gems and Steel, Uh, and looked at population flows from the cradle in Africa, and then makes a very powerful point about language as an indicator of where people are coming from. If a people were one people, and then from amongst them a group moves further in one direction. If you go to the first things that man began to identify with and check their languages, and those the same similar words are used in those languages, you will know that they were one once one people. If you look at Yoruba and Igbo languages, and go to the first things that people are named like their body parts and their immediate environment, you will find that, for example, the Yorubas say "imu," Ibo say "imi," Yorubas say "enu," Ibo say "onu," Yorubas say "eti," Ibo say "nti." And as you go down that, Ibo, Ubo, you find that the Yorubas and Iboes are basically the same people, and one group just move further east and as language developed they had new words for new things uh, uh that came up and uh, very important was laddie thompson's own statement about this animosity so to speak he said he said to one guy hey, look I, I want to bring yoruba and igbo leaders together and he goes ah, igbo, igbo. Ah, Uchiho, igbo. so he said he left him and started talking about other things and then 15 minutes later he came back and said buddy how's your wife yeah, because is fine. And then he, the guy suddenly <laughs> realized. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So I I um after that meeting, they asked me to host another one, and I did host another Yuba meeting. So my point is that as I look at the problems of ethnicity around the world, and I've tried to because my central concern as an academic is what makes for human progress? What has separated peoples? Why are some people more successful than others? In my work in Southeast Asia, uh, I found that there were small Chinese population groups in many of the countries of Southeast Asia. And most of them were the dominant economic players, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's Malaysia, of course it took over Singapore, and so on and so forth. And I was wondering, look, what separated these people? Why did the Chinese do so much better? And you begin to break the myths about, ah, Igbos are great traders, uh, this, and this and this. The nature of migration affects how institutions evolve, and so the nature of how institutions evolved in southeast asia allowed minority chinese people to become much more affluent in the same way what i call immigrant economistic ethic people who are migrant peoples they settle so they can't get into local politics because you know, other people are worrying about it. The locals are worrying about their politics. Those ones just focus on trying to make some money. And then they become very financially successful. Eventually, those things tend to spark bribery, um, sometimes ethnic animosity. There's a professor at Yale called Emichua. Emichua is of Chinese Filipino heritage. And many years ago, Ebichua wrote a book titled "World on Fire." How globalization is taking ethnic hatred against market dominant minorities. Invariably, those minorities that become market dominant, and the whatever we call it, envy or anger of local populations, and it begins to. Become a problem. In that book, Emichua takes a group of tribes around the world that have become market dominant minorities and the problems they have had. And she took her own tribe, the Chinese minorities in the Philippines uh, across Asia. And she had a chapter on the Igbos of Nigeria. Uh, You know, and she has several, there's some from Latin America and so on and so forth. So when I look at where these things exacerbated these ethnic tensions, what I see is the failure of politicians to actually act intelligently to prevent those kinds of cleavages from deepening. And what has become very evident from the American example uh, with Trump is that it is easy to whip up emotion against people who you can suddenly typecast as different. And emotion usually uh, is mobilized for selfish reasons by politicians, uh, which is why I have become fascinated by a center at Harvard called the Center for Moral Cognition, which has, as, a, as director a professor called Joshua Green. Joshua Green has written an interesting book titled Moral Tribes with a very good subtitle um, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. And what they do at the Center for Moral Cognition at Harvard is to combine neuroscience with psychology and philosophy to kind of Explain how emotion trumps reason. Hmm. And if you go back to political philosophy, and want to be best person driving their understanding of the public sphere from a philosophical perspective on that, in that regard, is a German called Jürgen Habermas. And he- he- Habermas actually argues that modernity um, and democracy uh, come together in rational public conversation. The marketplace of ideas. Now what has happened is that those who mobilize emotion over reason often push away rational public conversation. Thank you. So they can talk and use it to say, ah, they are against us, it's we, is them. America was a, an extraordinary society for a very long time before Trumpism, essentially because it was one of the easiest societies to melt into, the melting point. Uh, once you accept the American way, values, melt into it and nobody asks you what language you speak where your grandparents come from mm. you know how many americans have you asked what states do you come from You're <laughs> <laughs> you know it's where you've established residence you pay taxes that's, that's your state. but you know mm. how emotional that can be as an issue in a place like nigeria that the place where you've lived 50-something years, you were born there, have done everything, you
0: paid taxes from, the day you started working, somebody comes and says Bush that. Family, the George Bush family have a country home in Maine. One became governor in Florida. One became governor in Texas. And from,
1: yeah. One family produces governors in three states. You know, or something like that. It happens in America. And, and so, for me, basically in nigeria what we have had is a failure of politicians Uh, politicians who instead of showing people what brings them together by showing great goals that they can jointly pursue to make a better country a greater country uh uh, use the difference between us and them to build cleavages that they use to harvest power which they use for themselves not for the community they pretend to represent and that's the tragedy of nigeria But having said that, I'd like to point out that this has also been used positively, if you want to call it that, in Nigerian history. Back in the 1950s, um, the basis of social progress was competition between ethnic nationality groups on who will most bring progress to their people. Um, what you find, and there is, um, a former congressman from Michigan called Howard Wolpe, who was an academic, uh, Howard Wolpe and Robert Melson back in the seventies, I think, wrote a book on, um, modernization in Nigeria, in which they were trying to debunk, philosophy um an ethnocentric perspective that came out during the nigerian civil war in which some scholars were dismissing uh, these primitive black people on in tribal wars and and, Wopi and uh melson argued that what was going on in nigeria was not any primitive tribal war but that the nature of competition in nigeria had come down to who will most bring the gains of modernization to their people. Their people being located essentially in ethnic nationalities within regions. And they call the phenomenon competitive communalism. Um, I have a number of examples of that that i like to kind of speak to. You know, uh, one of them is... The Phenomenon of Education, Chief Obafemi Awolowo, proving to be a great leader, recognized that education was key to the future, pushed for universal basic free primary education in Western region back in the 50s, introduced it. When Dr. Azikiwe became Premier in Enugu, he wanted to compete on that ground and wanted uh, free primary education in Eastern Region. Um, The Civil Service tried to examine the program, his proposal to Parliament. Even though 40% of the budget had gone to education, it was inadequate because Western Region was making more money and Eastern Region was making from palm oil. So Chief Jerome Udoji who was permanent secretary in finance in Enugu advised that they could not introduce primary education uh, universal free primary education in eastern region and suggested that if they were to go that direction what would happen is first year should not be free people should pay which shows that they are really serious about education and then uh, primary five should also not be free that way, the eastern region could balance his, his budget. Zeke went to parliament and accused Udoji of sabotaging his government. And Udoji, threatened to resign, was then encouraged by the chief minister at the time and his patrick gentleman to take a leave and go to UK. By the time he was arriving in the UK, John Hood had given him a letter appointing him an executive director. Uh, so... He was going to leave, but his wife and other people put pressure on him that he would be doing a disservice to the eastern region. So eventually came back, and eastern region devised a unique way of bridging the financing gap. So emissions, the communities, which made the so-called Igbo State Union one of the biggest educators in the country. They had schools across the country, not only in the east, in the north, everywhere, Igbo State Union schools, which enabled Eastern region to leapfrog education. Now, if you go to industrialization, you see a similar phenomenon. Again, Chifapafemi Awolo led the way in creating the Ikeja industrial estate, invited investors from Europe into Ikeja, and Okhbara who had taken over in Eastern region would not be outdone by Awolo so he created Aba and Harcourt simultaneously to compete with the Ikeja Industrial Estate. And in fact, managed to entice Pfizer out of Ikeja to relocate into Aba. The nature of that competition led Nigeria to rapidly industrialize. Um, but the final one I will give here, and that is a really funny, pleasant one, um the colonial government was responsible for communications and radio was necessarily a monopoly of the central government not by law but because it had that way radio nigeria or nigerian broadcasting service as it was called back then said some things that were unfriendly about chief of bafemi who sought a right to reply and was refused so since he had the authority to, he wanted to start his own broadcasting service in Ibadan. And then decided to leapfrog and jump radio. In those days, as I, I went to school in Ibadan, I remember radiofusion services. We used to have these boxes from which, you know, you couldn't change any channel. Just That's the kind of radio system we had in Western region in the 60s. Uh, Chifabolo decided to leapfrog to a new technology called television. And so in 1959, WNTV came alive in Ibadan, the first television broadcast station in all of Africa. In fact, Ibadan had TV before Dublin and Brussels. Oh, wow. And immediately that happened, Okmara followed suit in hot pursuit. Man. It was literally weeks after. And WNTV's Banner uh, What they call it um, Punchline And I still remember it As a student In Ibadan In the 60s It turned on the TV The WNTV First In Africa Eastern region When the TV started Was Eastern Nigeria Broadcasting Service Television Second to none So Ibadan Was first In Africa In was Second to none so this this spirit of competition led to rapid development did it go too far perhaps maybe Uh, but i think it is important to understand the two sides to this whole uh, um, competitive communalism or competition between ethnic nationality groups in nigeria for the gains of development had politicians more savvy had been better leaders they could have managed the uh, downside of this better allowed the upside to provide that development and balanced growth in the country unfortunately what has now happened today is that politicians without scruples politicians with very little depth. Now, are capitalizing on these cleavages and they are causing grave hurt to the Nigeria oh, project.
0: Let me quickly ask you this. Yeah. Um, you say a lot about the leaders in the regions then. Clearly, what you said is that there was healthy rivalry. I remember UI, Osuka followed. Even they did not. Amadu Bello was created. You gave the example of the TV, you know, healthy rivalry. So my question is, is: the coup of sixty-six, I'm guessing I don't know. I'm asking you, at the expert now? If the coup of sixty-six never occurred, and from that January sixty-six, that could take place, and we have been going along that line, northern region, western region, eastern region, possibly uh, mid uh, midwestern region. Do you think Nigeria will be better off today?
1: You know. Uh... Factual counterpoint is something you can never completely prove. Mm -hmm. You can always uh, give impressions of Mm -hmm. what you think. Mm -hmm. My personal view is that the coup of 1966, Mm well-intentioned by very naive young men, did fundamental damage to Nigeria. I do believe that the politicians would eventually have sorted themselves out, even though Western region had reached certain extremes. Uh, had they failed to do that, maybe you could then argue, again, factual counterpoint, that the coup was a saving grace. But I do somehow think that they would have eventually found uh, solutions and Nigeria would have continued to make progress. What unfortunately then happened was the coup had been taking place. These young, naive soldiers, in their 20s mainly, uh, essentially fell into a trap. The nature of military structure is command. That led to a centralization of authority, whether you said unitary or federal or whatever, the reality of military mm-hmm. structure is that it's non-federal. It is a unitary structure. And so the big general at the center sends out some colonels to the regions. The colonel can never question the general. And because that was the case, and we I, 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 yeah. are using that story to illustrate this, I, I had a good fortune of having a some great uh, uh gurus be my mentors and and i learned plenty from from them at their feet uh, one of them was uh dr Paz Okibo. Doctor kibo was the first economic advisor to the prime minister of nigeria um and he told me a story about the steel uh industry in Nigeria. the federal government had decided to um, that a steel industry was very important to drive industrialization. So they decided to build a steel mill to be located near where coal was located and so on and so forth. And then they had a meeting of the national economic council, which was made up of the prime minister, The premiers and the technocrats, himself, the advisor, the permanent secretary, and so on and so forth. He said, when they got to the meeting, Prime Minister Tababalewa announced that he would set up a steel mill and announced where it would be located in one of the regions. And the other region and the other premiers said, No way. If the federal, this is federal, we are going to set up a steel mill then you must set up in every region so but like I said it's not practical to set up a steel first of all we can't afford more than one secondly the endowments of the regions vary so suppose you don't have uh, any iron ore no uh, um, coal and all of that you want a steel mill to be set up in your region how is that possible so the argument went on and on and on they were pounding the table after a while balewa asks all the um, technocrats to leave the room as it was now the big politicians So after about an hour or two they were called back and balewa announced that the federal government will now build a steel mill in every region he said he looked at balewa balewa looked away uh, so after the meeting <laughs> he started working towards the prime minister as he was walking towards the prime minister, Balewa said to him, Dr. Akibo, the powerful premiers have had their say, we will have our way. He said, Mr. Prime Minister, what will be our way? Dr. Akibo, we will do nothing. That's how Nigeria missed the still age. Oh, wow. Because the way to stop the premiers fighting is to agree to build one in every region knowing practically that they couldn't build one in every region. So many years later when the army was now in power and there was all the money available now coming through oil they decided to build a steel complex. By that time there was a global steel glut. you could pick up steel free on the streets of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So the People said to Nigeria, are you guys out of your mind? There's a global steel glotter, You want to build a steel mill. And so we said, ah, the West doesn't want us to industrialize. So we turned to the Russians. And the greater Jakarta story, 40 years on no steel, that's when that started. Wow. So, um, there are many stories to tell about that. Uh, 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 rivalry. And Yes, did uh, the, the coup change things, don't change things. Like I said, factual counterpoint. You can argue it any which it's
0: way. I want mm-hmm. to talk about representation and inclusion in, in the general uh, fixed states around for local government. I've been reading a lot about India lately. and One of the things I realized is that Indira Gandhi, sure you, you know more about this, and I probably do, was assassinated. There was no coup in India. That, typical assassination would have been a recipe have been automatic fool in a lot of African countries. Subsequently so, the son Rajiv Ghani also assassinated and all that. India today, the most populous democracy, the most populous country in the world, highly volatile also, no record of who in India. They have a people's constitution, some very high semblance of representation here and there. Now my question is, on representation and inclusion, do you think if we have a proper people's constitution where we all sit down, Georgia it looks like it's inevitable actually, in respect of what anybody thinks, but if we down that have a people people's constitution, genuine representation, or like what we have today, do you think that will help us as a nation?
1: Well, I first of all, I, um, I, I'm a believer that Nigeria needs to go back and walk the constitutional journey uh, afresh definitely top of my agenda to fix nigeria a constitution it does not mean that the constitution itself is a fix all um, the nigerian constitution is one of the bulkiest one of the biggest and yet we have problems every day on it the u.s constitution is a simple Document that has been around for a 100 years and it works. The British historian Neil Ferguson, in, in the book Civilization, uh, The West Versus the Rest, or in another edition, Six Killer Apps of Western Power, makes the point that the making of the US Constitution is probably one of the most powerful efforts at institution building in human history. When I first read that, I was a little. I guess I now that's too sweeping a statement for a historian to make. But the more, the more, the more I reflect on it, the more I see that um, Neil Ferguson is probably right. The strength of the U.S. Constitution, from thoughtful men reasoning deep into the future, has been phenomenal. Uh, Nigeria, unfortunately, has had all these messes with constitutions by soldiers tinkering here and there. And I think that it will help us. The process is even more important than the document itself. Because the process will help us establish a few things when we publicly discuss the issues. Let me give you one classic example. You know, one of the things that oil did to Nigeria was create um, this pre-Bendal culture. Uh, my friend, Richard Joseph, the political, political uh, scientist from Northwestern, um, in his book, Prebendal Politics in Nigeria, establishes this concept of bureaucratic prebendalism where basically it's like the vicar handing out prebends to his assistant vicars. So this is general like, top sharing the national cake that is the essential political culture that emerged with military rule and the convergence of soldiers and oil so bureaucratic prebendalism got us to a point where all people think of in political conversation nigeria is our share our share if you have power, get more, more for your people, more, more. Okay? So, in the 60s, we had local governments, but this was discretionary to the subnationals. Regions could create as many local governments as they saw fit. Just by choice of the regions, there were twice as many local governments in southern Nigeria as there were in northern Nigeria. Just by choice, not by any measure. The NPC government just chose to create fewer local governments. Whatever. Um, once the bureaucratic prebendalism culture closed in under military rule, and power was majorly in the hands of young northern military officers, what we found. Was that at every opportunity to push resources, the majority tried to push things that would bring more resources to their people. In 1975, 76, the Obasanjo government, uh, essentially, Brutal Obasanjo government, Obasanjo majorly, uh, carried out local government reforms. The result of those reforms, was that local government was brought into the fiscal transfer system. That is, uh, instead of just the federal government and the regions sharing from the distributable pool fund, we now had local governments entitled to 20.9%, I believe it was, of um, federally collected revenues and the federal government and the states sharing the rest. It was a lot of money. Nearly twenty-one percent of Nigeria's revenues were to go to sub uh, to third tier of government. Very, very quickly, the powerful young officers began to create more and more local governments from their villages for their villages, and suddenly there were more local governments in Kano than there were in Lagos, Ibadan, everywhere. But what has happened? What has happened is that those local governments were getting more and more federally collectible revenues. But the North was getting more and more and much more poorer than the South. Now, it doesn't seem logical that you are getting more money and you're getting poorer. Even though it doesn't seem logical, it is very logical. If you look at history, Mm. look at Spain 250 years ago. The conquistadores shipping silver and gold from Latin America to Spain. And the elite of Spain were splodging. A few generations later, smaller neighbors like Switzerland, like the Netherlands, were far richer than Spain. Well, I guess it comes call this the lottery effect if you've ever seen a poor man who wins the lottery a few short years later is poorer than he was when he won the lottery so what has happened is that as people have scrambled to get more and more of the so-called national cake those who have gotten the most have become the poorest a rational public conversation environment will enable people to understand this and to understand that the wealth, the wealth of nations sustained more by how you invest in your young people, rather than in what revenues you take away. Um, there's an American called Thomas Sowell who was written a nice book in which this is well explained actually, uh, I think it's wealth. Politics and poverty, uh, whatever the exact title is, I mean, book, uh. so well, book. So, you you find, unfortunately for us in Nigeria, that not having that conversation to build a real constitution has not enabled the education that will help us do the right thing. So, let's have that conversation. Let's have a people's constitution and move forward, it will work well for everybody.
0: Yeah, but, um, I mean, between 99 and today, Third Republic, do you think we've had an opportunity or we have missed an opportunity to have done this? Possibly not even under-president or do you think so?
1: Yes, so I a big constitution. Yeah, we missed a very, very big opportunity. You know, uh, uh, President Baseljo and I, famously frenemies. We get along.
0: <laughs> 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 I don't get along. No. Yeah, the are true to power I least blood to. This
1: is one of the many issues we fought about. Uh, 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 um, and we missed it also big time on uh, Jonathan. Yeah. At the yeah. I think the best opportunity we had actually was the 2014 Constitutional Conference. We had actually yeah. agreed on these things. But I, I don't think that Jonathan had the courage because he wanted a another term to push that through. Had he done it at that time, Nigeria would be far ahead of. This is what pains me about Nigerian politicians: the the the, the uh, self. Ah, let me get one more term. Let me get one more term. Had he forgotten about another term? Here was somebody who never had a chance, a shot at anything in life. You know, as he used to joke himself, suddenly he had been president for one year, two years, four, five. He said, Look, man, do this thing and save this country forever. No, I want another term. And we lost it all. People who are critical of some of us who went against Jonathan uh, forget that as people like me put our lives on the line for Jonathan to become president when the Yaradua gang was trying to play games only thing we wanted Jonathan to do was stabilize Nigeria but those who wanted him to cling on to power kept pushing him in one direction and he lost people like us Uh, it wasn't because we wanted Buhari because we just were fed up that Jonathan could not do the needful at that time and of course we were deceived into believing that Buhari would do something but that was a big shame he never intended to do anything and it turned out to be a nigerian tragedy
0: very sad interesting time We're still on atlantic discuss we're talking to professor patu tommy now we want to look at solutions proper and uh, i'm sure you have a lot of it now we have another uh, APC government succeeding president warren president warren in my opinion i think she was president nigeria but i'm sure a lot of people agree with me now we just had an election that cost well, almost 100 billion in Naira without even adding all the foreign money that came from EU and what have you. Over 50% of that money was so, was supposed to be te- based on technology to help us enhance our electoral system and possibly know who the president is within 24 hours. Now, that did not happen. Now, as a country, we're going to discuss today that we need a people's constitution. But clearly, we are struggling to elect leaders. Nigeria has a problem of not using their best level. according to the football people we have a way of bringing the most terrible people to the top today our economy is in a very dire strait. we're not looking too good but a lot of uh, uh people that come from the net who go to work here are going back because the server seems to have a more value than the naira so this Georgia, we need to have it doesn't look like it's going to happen there's poverty in the land the nation looks almost roadless you know there are people who are in power but it doesn't look like the trajectory is possible nobody really know what is happening financially we don't know whether we're broke or you know we might not be able to call it a failed state but it's a weak state clearly and my collapse and subsequently. So how do we get out of all this? India, swimming, is there really a way out? Because it's not looking too good and it doesn't to us. here, yeah, we don't think we have too much time to, to do this. Because what happened in Plateau State during the holidays, two days later, is clearly unacceptable to anybody. Nigeria today, we have been told, even by foreign media, well, the more, the highest number of Christian deaths in the world are in Nigeria. And today I was reading a statement by the Chief of Defense Staff. The Nigerian chief of I'm gonna read it out. The Nigerian chief of the first staff said the killing in Plateau State was carried out to embarrass and make Tilombu's government look stupid. I thought that was highly irresponsible, you know. So now the question is, do we really, it's it's not looking good. You have been, you've lived in Kaduna, you have lived in Kano, you have lived in Zafara, you went to Loyola, you have friends across the country, you benefited from a good Nigeria. As well as a youth company, you became advisor to Shagari, you banned Volkswagen at a young age. Now, everybody is living in Nigeria. I'm sure in your heart of heart you are not happy. You are yeah, I'm sure you are sad. You know, just to put it mildly. And the way things are going is not looking good. Is there a way out of
1: all this? Sir? That's just it. My state of mind is beyond sad. I'm depressed in the manner of speaking. Um, Especially because, you know, the current situation has elevated uh governance to a state of hubris just pure hubris uh people are engaged in self-love to the point of not thinking much about the future or thinking about others and they call it governance it's depressing uh one of the things i've struggled to do with my life my career is to show people that These things don't matter. You can give up something, if a greater good is possible. Mm. Uh, Wally was saying somewhere the other day that, they don't know what's wrong with me. I always step down or do this for somebody else. I said, no, 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 I'm a teacher by nature. And I like to use my personal experience to teach that it is possible to do those things. It doesn't have to be always me, me, myself and I. We are Africans. Talk about Ubuntu. I am because we are. If you can think of the good of all and deny a possible self so that all may make progress, you do a greater thing. Unfortunately, the kinds of politicians that have failed the state... Look, Nigerian state is literally a criminal enterprise today. Let's be very frank with ourselves. Um, Our last book was titled Why Not? The subtitle is Citizenship, State Capture, Creeping Fascism and the Criminal Hijack of Politics in Nigeria. That's the subtitle of my last book, written about five years ago. And I literally predicted this slide to where we are today. Uh, What has happened is that it is easy for a criminal to take over in Nigeria. Look at many of the characters who are governors today. In many parts of the world, majority of them will be in jail, but are the ones who are governing. Uh, so we miss the point that among the most critical things for human progress, strong institutions and culture values. Values shape human progress. You look at Nigeria, our values, our culture is in collapse. Our institutions are demolished every day by the politicians. And so you wonder, is there hope? But as the eternal optimist that I am, I believe that, you know, there is hope, not because of the who are there here now, not, but there are things that happen in the course of human history. And I, again, permit me to use two examples from history. Um, one from World War II, uh, another from Southeast Asia. I'm um, beginning with World War Two example. You know um, when World War Two was moving when the Allied forces invaded Europe, landed in Normandy, forcing uh, their way up. Uh, the German forces in paris were commanded um, by uh certain officer uh, adult Rumel. no not romel no uh, uh um anyway i remember his name in uh, in a, a moment and uh hitler ordered him to burn down paris you
0: know, i remember that story <laughs>
1: Yeah, and uh, he put on his uniform, looked at himself in the mirror, and said, Why should history remember me as a man who destroyed the most beautiful in the world? And, and he sent a message to the allied forces to please move in quickly and take over Paris. Of course, they didn't trust him, uh, and uh, you know. Hitler called him and said, Is Paris burning? And when they saw that he was not ready to bomb Paris, they sent an SS Panzer division to start moving towards uh, Paris. He sent the message again to the Allied forces. And then a ragtag Free French Forces Army, when they got the message, decided to just begin to go led by Charles de Gaulle, and they entered Paris without resistance. Um, You have those kinds of examples in history, and the question is, could one of these guys who are there now decide to commit personal uh, self-love suicide? By saying no, we're not traveling the right direction. Yeah, the other example that I like to give is the example of Singapore. People say, uh, "Talk too much about the Southeast Asia story," or better still, even the Malaysia story. And this young mulatto doctor in UMNO, UMNO, United Malay National Organization, Mahathir Ibn Mohammed, was critical of the Prime Minister, Tun Abu Razak on. And he was expelled from the party. And he went out and he wrote a book titled The Malay Dilemma sparking of riots and stuff like that in Kuala Lumpur and whatever, whatever. Anyway, in the end, prime minister resigned. He was recalled to the party, eventually became prime minister and pulled in the strands of divisions within the elite. pulled them into a room to approve a new economic policy or to look at a new economic policy thrust. And he used a rallying statement from an American from Texas, nonetheless, Mm. who can say irreverent stuff, Lyndon Baines Johnson, President of the United States of America. It's better for everybody to be inside the house, pissing out, than for someone to be outside the house, pissing in. Mm. The result of it is the Malaysia that we see today much, much better than we are. I believe that it is possible And in many ways, we have no choice. And I believe that there's a lead role for the Nigerian diaspora in that happening. Mm. Japan's emergence in the early part of the last century, following the Meiji Restoration, was significantly driven by the Japanese diaspora. India rising, China rising that we know of today, significantly effects of their diaspora. I am somehow convinced that the Nigerian diaspora will act in ways that will lead to a Nigerian Renaissance. And I believe that Nigeria will claim its promise.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, well, one more question before we go, you know. Um clearly the last election we know we're not happy about. There's been issue of certificate forgery and all this. I know you're you supported APC at the time, but you, you're always true to power when things go wrong and all that. And this is a direct question. Did President Chunobu as the governor of the legal state? In, I mean, he has some semblance of political sagacity in him and all that, a lot of expectation from him that like, we always do better than worry that worry was a shock to the system but being in power for some months now it doesn't look like that is happening so what happened the economic fiasco on Guinea, you know very terrible decision economical and what have you now do you think the issue surrounding the certificate 4 is a package slowing down the president or and two sorry is to say that? The mode and manner in which he marks, there's a credibility crisis that is so in him. That even if it's well intended, that would normally subsume whatever he wants to do. What do you think, sir?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think that there's a huge legitimacy crisis. And that legitimacy crisis essentially leads to actions that ordinarily will not have been taken. But are taken in pursuit of some legitimacy. The quick decision to please Washington, to please Paris, so that they, they can end legitimacy have been in the way of intelligent decision making. So what we now have is that we have reduced governance, like I said, to pure hubris in, in a manner of speaking, what I call an authoritarian narcissistic kakistocracy. Self-love of people who are not the best to govern in a challenged situation just is such that any smart person will say, look, I'm not going to be able to get great results in this thing. Less rewind the clock and do something different but it's difficult for people who are obsessed with power
0: and that's sadly where we are do you have a message for the diaspora Nigerian grand diaspora contingent before we end the program,
1: well um i think the nigerian diaspora has to apply the learning from where they live to creating a way of working to that to redeem nigeria clearly nigeria is not working as it is but we don't save nigeria by becoming more like nigeria where we are but we have to show what we have learned from where we are and use
0: it to redeem nigeria <laughs> Thank you very much. I've been talking to Professor Patrick Opey Dinaji, who told me, yeah, a scholar, scholar, a mentors mentor, he has traversed Nigeria, he's schooled in the north, in the east, and uh, of course in the background. Prof, thank you for coming to our to discuss. I'm sure like our viewers have paid a lot listening to you. You give a lot of hope to a lot of very forlorn and disappointed as well Contingent. And having listened to you, well, there's a figment of hope and i'm sure the diaspora contingent the nigerian diaspora contingent will take a cue from all that you said they have to reorganize and calibrate and lead by example india india has done it with their diaspora contingent i know you didn't mention india but I'm sure you always think.
1: So i like to mention india quite a bit and you know but the, you know from the assassination of rajiv gandhi to uh, uh, how the Rao government nearly bankrupt, mm-hmm. three weeks trading money, restarted started India with a series of policy choices driven mainly by the diaspora, the role of the intellectual diaspora, and the books on outsourcing that drew resources into India, and so on and so on and so forth. Uh,
0: yes. Thank you very much sir. The Filipino example too is there, they help every day, so we can go on and on. We have said it before, the Malaysians have done it, everybody has done it. Nigeria is the largest concentration of black people on the planet. We are way, way behind schedule. There's work to be done. Prof, thank you so much. We're going to call on you again if the need arise. So thank you for your time. Thank you for getting our call. I know it's only daytime and you're busy, but thank you once again. To all our listeners and viewers all over the world, thank you for listening. We're going to call it a wrap there. And uh, next week, we're going to come with another guest. A fantastic topic that we all learn from. Prof, once again, thank you for coming to Atlantic.
1: <laughs> Great pleasure.